Indeed, hallelujah, what a Savior. Let us not lose sight of our glorious King. Let us not get bogged down in the minutia of our day-to-day lives, even the more weighty matters of our day-to-day lives. But let us remember we have a King, and He is glorious. This morning I would ask that you turn with me to the book of Ruth, chapter 1. Before we get into the word, I would ask you to be in prayer for um, Miss Jenny Smith and Connie and Jack Moore and Mike and Eleanor Morris as uh, David Smith, their brother, passed away. Uh, Not unexpectedly, but at the same time, death remains an enemy, even when it is expected. And so we do need to continue to pray for them as they... uh, go and have a service for him this afternoon, Um, continue to lift them up to the Lord as we are mindful that uh, one day death will be no more, and we long for that day. As we begin the book of Ruth, though, in the Old Testament, this book stands as a gleaming monument to God's grace, a reminder and encouragement that all the things that we dread, death included, one day will be no more. It stands as this reminder in the midst of a desolate landscape of ruin and decay. If you have followed with us through our study of the book of Judges, you know that this period of time in Israel's history was not a very pleasant one. It's a period of time that was marked by idolatry, perversions, disregard for God's law, suffering at the hands of foreign oppressors and even sometimes Jewish oppressors, contained child sacrifice, rape, unchecked sexual abuse, civil war, and the list continues. That was just a normal Tuesday in Israel at this time. This is what it was like to live in the promised land. Promised indeed. It was full of suffering, trials, persecutions, oppressions. The weak and the vulnerable were exploited by the strong. Might made right, as everyone did what was right in their own eyes. But as we come to the end of the book of Judges and we turn the page literally in our Bibles to the book of Ruth, we find here something that stands in stark contrast to the horrors that we have just encountered in the book of Judges. Here we see a story of humble, sacrificial love. We see God lifting His hand of judgment in order to bathe His people anew in His grace. We see faithfulness when we should expect defection. We see steadfast love in this story, both of God and from His people. We see in this story redemption. These things make the book of Ruth something akin to the rainbow that God spread across the sky after the flood. A reminder of His great promises to His people. Coming at a time when surely His people were wondering, do God's promises 
still stand? Does hope remain even in this time? Well, Ruth is an emphatic yes to that haunting question. Even in the midst of great darkness, hope remains. Even when sin tightens its grip, hope remains and God's promises will stand. In the present evil day in which we live, we need that assurance. Just this week, we have witnessed unspeakable tragedy as 17 lives were claimed and hundreds of students were traumatized with an experience that will no doubt haunt them for the rest of their lives. Yet this event that we witnessed in Florida, unfortunately, is not something that's new or isolated. This type of thing has repeated itself far too often in the past couple of years. In an elementary school, a nightclub, a concert, and even last year in a church where our brothers and sisters were gathered to worship just as we are today. Inevitably, we will move on from this latest tragedy as the news cycle picks up on some new tragedy or scandal or distraction, whatever it may be. We'll move on from this and our attention will be occupied by something else, which is a testimony to the fact that there is so much wickedness and so much corruption occurring in our day that we can't just stop for a moment and meditate on how wicked the world in which we live truly is because our attention is always pulled to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And what's perhaps most disturbing about all this is the fact that right now we may be weathering this storm in one of the better countries in the planet on which to do so. Our encounters with evil, though great, though incredibly disturbing, are often small compared to what takes place elsewhere. And so, lest we despair in the face of such evil, we need to be reminded of God's remarkable grace, His steadfast love for His people. And so we come to the book of Ruth. As we start the book of Ruth today, we will unfortunately start with a grim picture. A picture that no doubt will remind us of the era in which we live. The author wants us to understand the darkness of this day in order to understand the marvelous work of redemption that God is going to perform by the end of this book. He wants us to see how bad things have gotten so that by the end when we see what God is doing for this people, we will be amazed. Post-tenebrous lux was one of the mottos of the Reformation. After darkness, light. This hope that even in the midst of darkness, we can look forward to the day when light will break through. When God will rescue His people. And so too, we see this hope in Ruth. But in order for us to comprehend the light, we must first, unfortunately, know the darkness. So then let us set the stage for what is to come in this glorious book. I would ask that if you are able with me this morning that you would stand in honor of the reading of the word of God. 
Beginning in chapter 1 of Ruth, reading verses 1 through 5, we read, Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, the name of his wife was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malan and Chilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to the country of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left and her two sons. Now they took wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. And they dwelt there about ten years. Then both Malan and Chilion also died. So the woman survived her two sons and her husband. You may be seated. And let's once again turn to the Lord in prayer this morning. Lord, again we come acknowledging our great need of you. We are often easily overwhelmed and overcome by the circumstances of the world in which we live. We are bombarded daily with the effects of sin in a fallen and depraved world. So much so, Lord, that sometimes it's hard for our hearts to bear it. And perhaps even more disastrous, Lord, we often simply become numb to it as a way of coping with all the evil, all the corruption that we see everywhere we turn. Lord, I pray that you would help us not to become numb, but that instead we would turn our broken hearts to the only one who can offer peace, to the only one who can offer hope and light. Lord, I pray that we would cry out to you with our burdens, that we would seek refuge in your hand, Lord. I pray that as we consider now the story of Ruth, that we would be indeed encouraged by your incredible love for your people, and that we too would respond in faithfulness, just as Ruth did, just as Boaz did. I pray, Lord, that you would help us this morning to see and understand your word. I pray that you would help me to preach it faithfully. That it would settle in the ears and hearts and minds of your people and encourage them greatly. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. The author of this little book begins by telling us the context of the book. And that's the first thing that we need to consider as we begin to understand what's going on. What is the context in which the book appears? The story itself takes place during the time, we're told, in which the judges ruled. Now, no specific judge is named, but frankly, it doesn't really matter because by and large, the entire period of the judges 
a time spanning roughly 400 years, was a complete catastrophe from beginning to end. If you don't know what I'm talking about, if you've heard me make reference to the book of Judges and you think, was it really that bad? After all, there was Samson. Wasn't he a good dude? Go back and read the book of Judges and understand how wicked and corrupt the people, the leaders of the nation during this era truly were and how much sin had permeated the lives of these people. That's the context in which this story comes to us. This is what's going on all around them. The, 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 the story of Ruth takes place almost in a microcosm during the book of Judges at some point. However, this story was not recorded for us during that time, at least not in its final form. It's likely that this story was not recorded until the reign of King David. Once we arrive at the end of the book, you will see that there's a genealogy, and that genealogy ends with David. And so it's likely that sometime during his reign, or shortly thereafter, the book of Ruth was actually composed in the form that we have today as a way of looking to David. Therefore, as we consider the purpose of the book, why the author may have written it, if I can leapfrog the second heading in your notes for a moment and go on to the third, we'll come back to the second, I assure you. But the purpose of this book likely has something to do with David because that's where it ends. The book opens with famine and disaster, but it concludes with Israel's preeminent king. The whole arc of the story then finds its conclusion in David. And so we can rightfully conclude that the author is using the story of Ruth to tell us something about Israel's greatest king. Specifically, there are two points of fact that may have provided the impetus for this story. First, when you read through the genealogy that's contained at the end of the book in the final chapter, you'll see that Boaz, the hero of the story in some regards, In David's genealogy from the line from Perez to David, Boaz occupies the seventh slot in that genealogy. It's significant because as you go back and you look at other genealogies in the Bible, if you go back specifically, that word's hard for Kentuckians to say sometimes, specifically uh, the the genealogy in the book of Genesis in chapter 5 from Adam to Noah, you will find that it's Enoch that occupies the seventh spot in that genealogy. And so just like Moses takes some time in Genesis chapter 5 to provide some additional details about righteous Enoch, who occupies that favored position, so too does the author of Ruth take some time to provide additional details here about righteous Boaz, who occupies the same favored position. He's telling the story of this spot in David's genealogy in order to elevate the entire genealogy in order to highlight the righteousness that is in this line. The other motivating factor in telling this story would have been Ruth's ethnic identity as a Moabite. As we will see later and get into in some detail in this book, this would have proved to be a significant obstacle for David's claim to the throne. Perhaps his enemies, those men loyal to Saul, even used this detail, Ruth's ethnic identity, 
as a way of challenging his legitimacy as king. And they could have had very good grounds to do so. They could have pointed back to Moses' law to say, See, Ruth, a Moabite, would preclude her offspring, David, from being king. We'll talk about this, as I said, in more detail later. But suffice it to say now, this would be akin to accusing the president of being born in a foreign country. Or perhaps being an agent of a foreign government. They're trying to delegitimize his claim to the throne by arguing that he has a Moabite in his ancestry. The book of Ruth, however, neutralizes their argument in a powerful way by pointing us to redemption. Pointing us to the way in which this argument is nullified by a powerful act that takes place in which Ruth is brought from a foreigner into the people of God. And so then we have mentioned briefly the context of this book taking place in the time of Judges and the purpose of writing it. I want to take a look for just a moment at the themes of the book. There are three powerful themes that will emerge as we work our way through this book. First, at every turn in the book of Ruth, everywhere we look, the law of God is fulfilled to the letter. You will find no other example in the Old Testament in which an entire community is so dedicated to ensuring the proper execution of God's law in every detail. This stands in stark contrast to the rest of the era of the judges during which little regard is paid to God's law. However, what is perhaps even more surprising about this fact is the seeming nonchalantness by which the people go about performing God's law. There is no announcement such as, well, in this situation, the law says we must do X, therefore we are going to do X. No, as we read the book, it occurs naturally to these people. This is just the way that they are living their lives, walking in obedience to the law of God. It's almost as if they're not even aware that that's what they're doing. It's so natural to them. It's just a way of life. In the way that they work, in the way they go about their business in the fields, they're keeping the law of God. In the way they relate to one another as individuals, even in in a relationship as someone that's superior to someone that's inferior to them. They're keeping the law of God. In the way that they execute justice in the city gates, the way that they keep their civil laws, they are following the law of God to the letter. It's as if God is saying, yes, this is what I want my people to look like. This is what I've called you to be. This is what it looks like whenever my law is followed. People are able to flourish. Good things happen. When my law is kept. This is what a community of believers is supposed to look like. It should not surprise us that this holy enclave then is found in the city of Bethlehem. A beacon of light in the midst of a darkened generation. A city that would later produce Israel's greatest king, as well as its Messiah. 
because of the numerous examples of strict adherence to the law within the book, contrasted against the numerous examples of disregard for God's law in the book of Judges, we can be confident that these two books are meant to be taken together. One showcasing a society that has neglected Yahweh and His law, the other showcasing an exception to that rule. A holy remnant which God preserves in order to accomplish His purposes of bringing first a king and later the king of kings to His people. So the first theme that we see in the book of Ruth is the keeping of God's law. A second important theme in Ruth is the theme of chesed. You have to add the little on there if you want it to be correct, and I'm not good at doing that, but chesed. Chesed is a Hebrew word which is often translated steadfast love, although the term has a much broader and deeper inherent meaning. It simultaneously conveys all of these notions, the idea of covenantal loyalty, faithfulness, kindness, goodness, mercy, love, and compassion, all wrapped up into one. It's always demonstrated by a person in power, by a person in a position of power toward a person who is vulnerable and who has an urgent need to be met. And we will talk more about these examples as they come up in the book, but it is demonstrated primarily in the book by God toward His people. But also we see it demonstrated by Boaz toward Ruth. And also by Ruth toward Naomi. Each time we see Chesed demonstrated, it is a reminder that God keeps His word. God loves His people and He keeps His promises to them. His promises will not fail. He will ensure it by any means necessary. Even in times of darkness and doubt. God is steadfast in His love. The third theme in the book of Ruth is redemption. Again, God is redeeming His people for Himself out of the midst of moral chaos and confusion. This is primarily demonstrated through what is perhaps the most poignant picture of redemption short of the cross. Ruth begins the book as a foreigner, a pagan, separated by ethnicity and religion from the people of God. She is barren. She is widowed. She is impoverished. She has literally nothing going for her at the outset of this book. Yet she will end the book engrafted into the people of God, brought into the covenant community of Israel. She will be exalted among the matriarchs of Israel and cherished by a wealthy and noble man who did not owe her a thing. And all of this takes place by an act of redemption. A beautiful picture of what God Almighty has done for us. It's what He's going to do for Ruth. He's going to bring her from nothing and give her everything. It's incredible. Unfortunately, though, as we said, we have to start, though, in the darkness. Ruth does not begin having experienced redemption. 
No, in fact, at the beginning of the book, we see quite clearly that God's people, indeed the entire promised land, is under a curse. I would ask that you turn with me quickly to Deuteronomy chapter 28. Deuteronomy chapter 28. The book of Ruth opens with a curse, but it's not an unexpected curse. Again, if you are familiar with the wickedness that takes place during the time of Judges, you will know that this is fitting and right. God has warned His people before they ever entered the promised land. He told them through His servant Moses, you can expect these things to occur if you do not keep my law. And so in Deuteronomy chapter 28, we have this warning beginning in verse 15 of Deuteronomy chapter 28. There Moses says, But it shall come to pass, if you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God, to observe carefully all His commandments and His statutes which I command you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the country. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your body and the produce of your land, the increase of your cattle and the offspring of your flocks. Cursed shall you be when you come in, and cursed you shall be when you go out. The Lord will send on you cursing, confusion, and rebuke in all that you set your hand to do until you are destroyed and until you perish quickly because of the wickedness of your doings in which you have forsaken me. The Lord will make the plague cling to you until He has consumed you from the land which you are going to possess. The Lord will strike you with consumption, with fever, with inflammation, with severe burning fever, with the sword, with scorching, and with mildew. They shall pursue you until you perish. Then skip on down to verse 36. There He says, the Lord will bring you and the king whom you have set over you to a nation which neither you nor your fathers have known. And there you shall serve other gods, wood and stone. And you shall become an astonishment, a proverb and a byword among all the nations where the Lord will drive you. These are just some of the curses, just a sampling of what God had promised would overtake His people if they neglect His law. We see these played out in the opening scene of Ruth. There's a famine in the land of Israel. The the produce of the field is cursed. The heavens are shut up like bronze. There's no rain. There's no food. They're experiencing the curse. And in Israel, there's no food. But in Moab, their next door neighbor... There was food. What else could this be but the very hand of God extended against His people because they had forsaken His law? What would you surmise if you're driving down the road and you see two neighbors, identical properties, identical homes, perhaps in the same suburb, and one of them has a nice lush green lawn and the other's lawn is brown and dried? Is it that one didn't receive the same rain? Is it that one has not received the same sunshine. No, those things have fallen and 
The sun has shone on both just the same. There's other factors at work, and so too here, because there's food in Moab, but there's not food in all the land of Israel, we can surmise that the hand of God has gone out against his people. The curse has overtaken them. Not only that, but his people, specifically this family, they're exiles. Exile and alienation. Alienation was one of the curses that would overtake his people. If they forsook his law, they would be driven out into a foreign land. This theme is going to be repeated, of course, throughout the Old Testament and applied to Israel as a whole. But here and now, this family, they're experiencing this alienation from the people of God. This is self-imposed, though. They had thought that perhaps they could outrun the hand of God in a foreign land. Unfortunately for them, the story of Jonah hadn't been recorded yet, and so they couldn't see that that will not work out for them. We see this repeated throughout Scripture, that you cannot outrun the hand of God. Even there, He will find you. And even there, in the land of Moab, attempting to flee the curse, the famine, the full weight of the curse falls upon this family. Curse finds them, it overtakes them. And Elimelech, the patriarch of the family, dies. We're told that after his death, his sons took wives from the people of Moab. And after ten years of attempting to produce offspring, after ten years of attempting to raise up children and failing, Naomi's sons also died. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb indeed. God had warned his people in Deuteronomy, choose life or choose death. You have the option. And we know based on the book of Judges what his people chose. And now they are paying the penalty for that choice. The idolatry and wickedness of God's people during the time of the Judges has resulted in desolation. The curses that God promised through Moses, they've overtaken God's people. And as a result, it appears that this family, the name of Elimelech and his sons, are about to be eradicated from the record of the people of Israel. This family is about to be annihilated unless God intervenes in a miraculous way. But that is exactly what the book of Ruth is about. God intervening in his people's lives in a miraculous way to save them and redeem them and preserve them. God is laying the groundwork for a blessing for his people. And not just a blessing. He's laying the groundwork for ultimate salvation. He's putting the pieces into place here. He's gathering the pieces which will yield David and ultimately Christ. And he's doing it through, not in spite of, but through the judgment of the curse. Post tenebrous lux, after darkness, light. His people are immersed in darkness, but there is hope. There's a glimmer. It's shining through that God 
is still going to remember his people. He's going to keep his promises to them and bring them out of this present evil age. This is where the author begins, with the curse. But he's not going to end there. He's not going to end the same way that the book of Judges ended, in despair. Everyone doing what was right in their own eyes. No, he's going to point us to a greater reality. The fact that there is a people, a remnant, that is seeking to glorify their God. And God is redeeming them. Setting them aside for himself. Ultimately, the book of Ruth is very similar to where we are now. We remain in a fallen, in a cursed world. All around us, we continue to see the devastating effects of the curse. From school shootings, to abortion mills, to war, to famine, to the disintegration of the family, the commodification of sex and pornography. Everything about this world is perverse. It's broken and it's wrong. But Christ has come into this world. Into the curse. And not only has He broken the power of the curse, but Paul says in Galatians 3.13 that He became the curse for us. He became the curse, taking the curse in His own body. He has redeemed us from the curse by taking the curse upon Himself. Yet we still do not see the full effects of this redemption, at least not yet. We will not see it until Christ returns to establish His kingdom fully and finally. And that's what we look forward to. The return of our King to establish His kingdom, so that we may know full redemption, so that we may say goodbye once and forever to the curse. In the meantime, we're called to wait patiently and to hope, to fight against the curse in every area that we can, to strive to walk in obedience to Christ's commands, following the example of Ruth and Boaz, Noting that the natural outworking of Christ's commands in the lives of His people will lead to flourishing and goodness in our community. Right now, unfortunately, there may be days when it's hard to see beyond the curse. This week contained some of those days for many people where darkness seemingly devours the light, where there is no hope, no brighter day around the horizon because evil is just too great. But still, our Lord is there. It's likely what Naomi thought when she first lost her husband and then her two sons. Where is the hope here, Lord? All hope is swallowed up and gone. There remains nothing for me. But God knows what He's doing. And God has brought someone into her life that will restore that hope, not just for her and her family, but for all Israel and ultimately for all mankind. When we experience those days, 
where darkness seems to hide his lovely face. We need to remember that the Lord is there. The Lord is working. The Lord is bringing about his plans to completion. Demonstrating his steadfast love to his people. Redeeming his people. Let us hope in that even when we are overtaken by the curse. Let's pray. Lord, this morning we, your people, humbly cry out to you, needing to be reassured of your love. Not because your love was ever in doubt, not because you ever failed to show it to us, but because we ourselves are weak-minded. Because we allow you and your love to be obscured from us by our circumstances. Lord, so often it's hard for us to look beyond the darkness that envelops our lives. But help us to remember, Lord, that after darkness comes light. In the midst of the curse, there is Christ. He is not working to redeem his people from afar. But he has come to us in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our darkness, in the midst of the curse. And it is there that he has met us. It is there that he has redeemed us. And it is there that he continues to show his steadfast love to us. Lord, bind these truths to our hearts so that when we ever begin to doubt, we will be called back to our senses. Lord, help us to love you. Help us to rest in you. Help us to find our hope and our security in Christ alone. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.